electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to Tech Check in progress. The super wealthy and big corporations, like the 55 major corporations that don't pay a single penny in taxes, even though they had a $40 billion in profits. The point is this. I'm doing everything I can on my own to help working families during this stretch of higher prices. I'm going to continue to do that. But Congress needs to act as well. We can do so much more if we come together to lower the cost for American families. But my congressional Republican friends, led by Rick Scott, have a different approach. He's actually introduced a plan. He wants to raise taxes on working families by an average of $1,500 a year, put Medicare and Social Security, Medicaid, and, excuse me, Social Security and Medicaid on the chopping block every five years. In other words, every five years, they they're going to no longer exist unless they vote them back into existence. I disagree with that. What in God's name are they doing? And I'll work with anyone, Democrat, Republican, Independent, to deliver real solutions and real savings for the American people, not take money out of their pockets. Now, the other element I'd like to address that has impacts on inflation is to lower the deficit. The reason this matters to families is because reducing the deficit is another way to ease inflation. My friends on the Republican side like to paint me as the big spender. But let's look at the facts. Facts matter. Under my predecessor, the deficit exploded, rising every single year he was in office. Under my plan, we're on track to cut the federal deficit this year by $1.7 trillion. Hear me now? This year, by $1.7 trillion, that's a fact, the largest decline in American history. And by the way, those aren't White House projections. They come from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office that you and the press and everybody around the country legitimately quotes all the time. That progress on tackling the deficit was not preordained. It was my economic strategy built into our historic recovery that we didn't anticipate a war in Ukraine at the time. Historic economic growth that not only helped tens of millions of families move up, it has helped our federal deficit come down. And now because of that strategy, we're on track for a deficit to take up a lower share of our economy than it did before the pandemic. In fact, the Treasury Department is planning to pay down, pay down the national debt this quarter, which never happened under my predecessor. Not once, not once. Because unlike my predecessor, the deficit has come down both years I've been here. I propose a plan to keep shrinking that deficit by making common sense reforms to our tax code, leveling the playing field internationally so that the biggest companies no longer have an incentive to shift jobs over, to shift them overseas to make their product because they get charged less in taxes and avoid paying their fair share of taxes here at home. We put together a multi-nation initiative that I'm hopeful will come into play at the G7. And ending the outrageous unfairness of our tax system allows billionaires. Look, if you can make a billion dollars, all for it. Just pay a little bit of your fair share, you know? Just pay your fair share. Billionaires pay a lower rate than a teacher or a firefighter. The bottom line is this. Part of the reason I ran for president is because I was tired of trickle-down economics. It doesn't work. My plans are to produce the strongest, fastest, most widespread economic recovery America has ever experienced. With record jobs, new record small businesses, and wages rising. It's the foundation for an economy that works for working families. Because of that foundation, we're better positioned than any country in the world to overcome global inflation that we're seeing and reach a new chapter of stable and steady growth. So let's come together and focus on what's matter on what matters. Let's build on the extraordinary progress we've made. Let's continue to build this economy from the bottom up and the middle out. When that happens, everybody does well, including the very wealthy. 
Thank you and God bless you. And uh, I, uh, God may God protect our troops. I'll take a few questions. That was the president speaking about inflation, economic growth, taxes in the wake of that jobs report. Let's get over to Kayla Tausche for more perspective. And Kayla, the president talked about bringing down inflation while not hurting economic growth. And that is really the delicate balance that pretty much all policymakers are trying to achieve. Well, Dee, the White House and the president have honed their message this week as the U.S. economy being able to tackle inflation from a position of strength. And the president and his top aides see this morning's jobs report as proof positive that that slowdown that will come eventually, uh, that perhaps uh, this better than expected report uh, is just proof that the economy is still strong, that a recession is at bay, and that there will be stable and steady growth in the president's words going forward. The reason why he focused on inflation and continues to focus on inflation, it is the number one priority and frustration of voters. And within the jobs report, uh, there is one statistic in specific that I think the White House is taking note of, and that is the job or the wage growth, rather, the 5.2% wage growth for May. It is moderating, and that's good news for businesses and for the Federal Reserve. But for workers who are grappling with inflation above 8%, that is still very tough for them to stomach. The president saying that he knows uh, that more needs to be done and suggesting that the U.S. and its allies allies are working to put more of Ukraine's wheat on rail cars to extract it from the country, Ukraine being the breadbasket for the rest of the world, and to try to bring some of those food and bread prices right. down. We'll see what, if any, policy ends up getting resolved there, D. Uh, but certainly making a little news on that front. Yeah, thanks for that wrap-up. And, you know, many this morning have called it a Goldilocks report, but the markets are falling um, as he's talking. Let's listen back in. Is OPEC doing enough on oil production? Well, what I recently read is talking to my team that uh, they acknowledge that there is uh, an oil shortage and they have made an announcement of late that they're going to increase production. So I, I, I don't know enough to know whether it's enough, but I know it's positive. Mr. President, does Ukraine have to cede territory to achieve some peace? You know, you've been always fair with me. Uh, the um, From the beginning, I've said, and I've been not everyone's agreed with me. Uh, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. It's their territory. I'm not going to tell them what they should and shouldn't do. But it appears to me that at some point along the line, there's a settlement here. What that entails, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows at the time. But in the meantime, we're going to continue to put uh, the, uh, the, the uh, um, Ukrainians in a position where they can defend themselves. Thank you Mr. all so very much. will you go to the Hill next week on guns? Do you monitors? My staff is, my staff is dealing, has been dealing constantly with every member of the House and Senate who's wanted to talk about guns. It's been a constant interchange. And uh, I've been constantly briefed. I will do what I can to try to see that we have some real progress. Thank you. More from the president there on oil production in Ukraine. It is a Friday morning, though. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Bosa with Julia Borston in L.A. And guest host Kanye Machabella from Kindred Ventures right here with me at One Market. Today's big theme, jobs. You just heard it from the president. Despite solid gains for the month of May, tech is painting a different picture. Now we have a breakdown of companies across the sector hitting the brakes on hiring as valuations tumble. Uh, Elon Musk, the latest CEO, jumping on the trend, sending an email to Tesla executives titled, quote, pause all hiring worldwide, adding he has a super bad feeling about the economy and plans to cut jobs at the company by about 10 percent. Um, guys, this is more of the rhetoric that we've seen, and now this is really hitting the manufacturers, the auto manufacturers. This is perhaps notable because this isn't just a tech company. This is an auto company as well, right, Kanye? Yes, it is indeed an auto company. But I think it's important to note that so much of what Elon is thinking about is as somebody who's being judged as a tech company. And so as somebody who's being judged as a tech company, there's two factors that he's considering, one of which 
is uh, the liquidity crunch that's inevitably coming. And the second of which uh, is the fact that he, just like everybody else, um, needs to figure out whether or not there's going to be uh, a new trade mm -hmm. now that we've sort of left the tech trade of the last 18 months. But Julia, this is not Netflix. I mean, Netflix has a fundamental problem here. Tesla, in terms of demand, in terms of production, even compared to some of the auto other automakers, has held up much better. Yeah, Tesla has held up much better. And if you look at the different analysts, look at how Tesla has done, there are none of the traditional signs that Tesla itself is facing a slowdown. And I have to wonder how much Elon Musk's comments are Tesla-specific rather than more broadly about the economy as a whole. I mean, this is a company that's had challenges restarting its production in Shanghai. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's sort of a number of unique factors specific to Tesla. So, Kanye, I'm wondering whether you think that Elon Musk is really looking broadly at the space or just at his own company? If I'm Elon, I'd be looking at both. And frankly, either way, uh, I would be doing the same thing. Uh, you've got tech companies all across the board right now who are thinking about cutting costs proactively, who are thinking about finding ways to shore up their supply chains, shore up their enterprise customers, and figure out ways to extend runway to manage liquidity, given the period that we're about to enter into. So whether or not it's a matter of internal issues or a matter of what's happening in the macro, uh, this is what you should be doing right now. Even if you don't have a demand problem, I mean, there are long wait lists. It feels like so many people are waiting to get their hands on a Tesla, and they just can't. And this is very different than what we've heard from the likes of Uber and Robinhood and Coinbase, which I know we're going to talk about later. But these are companies that are fundamentally seeing a slowdown. Do you think that what Elon Musk is saying about Tesla, a company that is in a relative position of strength, should make us worried about other companies that are coming from a position of strength relative to some of the other ones? In short, probably. Yeah. Uh, and I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to predict the fact that in Q3, Q4 of this year, we may actually see a softening in demand. We actually may see a lot of the results of this quantitative tightening that's coming in. And that's going to have an impact on whether or not consumers are really you know, ready to spend the way that they've been spending right. the last 18 months. Right. So there's more, there's more to come. Well, despite all of these macro headwinds that we just discussed, a trio of software CEOs, they are bullish in the near term. Take a listen. We're in a fortunate part of the market. Um, we, we are sort of an enabler of this sort of generational transition to cloud. We certainly are aware of the macro and we're sort of measured in our, in our guidance and how we think about projecting our, uh, you know, the next 12 months. But over the longer arc, we're sort of tied to this longer, longer term transition, which for most companies is, is sort of at the very, very top of their priority list. So regardless of what's happening in their companies, these projects, these initiatives tend to be the ones that are durable. You know, you see that in the, the big cloud provider results. We're playing the long game. I've lived through multiple market cycles. You know, in this particular cycle, our customers have stronger balance sheets than we've ever seen. There's still a huge appetite for software and infrastructure that helps you work more efficiently and more effectively and deliver better customer experiences. While there's a challenging macro on the horizon, I think for us, it's an opportunity to make sure our enterprise software is getting out there. Now, as you can see, all three of those names, they are plummeting this morning following results. But based on their outlook, there might be more opportunity in this market. Check out the move on Okta. This is a smaller name for sure. Also reported last night, bucking the trend, raising their guidance. They're up 8 uh, percent. Julia Kanye, wow, what a different tone than how we started the show. These guys were all extremely optimistic. They are not slowing down hiring, Julia. Um, and this maybe is because they are the enterprise software. We've heard a similar tone from Microsoft, from Benioff over at Salesforce. But it does feel like this is a part of tech that is certainly holding up um, better than others. Yeah. And look, I think the key thing here is that these are the companies that are offering their customers tools to become more efficient. That was the term that Jen Tejada used over at PagerDuty. And I think what's essential here is that their customers are trying to figure out not only how to save money, but to transition to this digital future where more things are automated, whether it's customer service or they're moving um, everything into the cloud. And so if they could prove to their customers that they are going to be tools for managing margins, for preserving margins in this time, then they are going to be able to continue to be successful. And I think a lot of the optimism in the second half of the year is really about that, Connie, the sense that they are going to be tools for profitability uh, for their customers and then therefore become profitable themselves. 
Yeah, Julia, I agree. And there is a nuance that I want to just point out, which is that there's uh, different reasons why companies buy enterprise software. Um, one of those reasons is to maintain and improve existing systems. And another one is to do uh, sort of so-called offense. And what's interesting about something like a PagerDuty is PagerDuty is trying to uh, play some offense. And they're trying to automate. They're trying to improve profitability. They're trying to create a better customer profile uh, in the customer service and the service sector by automating so much of what they're doing. Whereas what something like a HashiCorp is doing is they're actually allowing companies to better maintain systems. And so if you already have big cloud, if you've got GCP, Microsoft, Azure, you're trying to figure out how to live in a multi-cloud world, how to create good integrations among those, HashiCorp is the type of thing that you need. So I think that nuance is an important one to consider when you're thinking about which companies are going to be resilient during this period. But in both cases right now, the fundamentals are extremely strong, and I can see why they're so bullish as a result. You know, Kanye, a few weeks ago, we spoke, we spoke to Orlando Bravo, clearly you know, a huge player in the PE world. And he said enterprise software, that's where it's at. He is making his list. He is still shopping. He thinks there's lots of opportunity. And we even asked him, we said, okay, there's rumors that you guys were looking at Twitter. He didn't really say yes or no, but he said, it made me realize how good enterprise software is by looking in other sectors at other companies. And I guess what investors need to do right now when we think about that opportunity, which companies are need to have versus nice to have, right? We were talking earlier before the show, AI, different AI companies, which ones are doing a good job that they've already incorporated themselves, they're not going to see spending cut back, and which ones, you know, haven't as well. Yeah, so you make a good point, and you know, this idea that we're living in a world of digitization and digital transformation is a broad stroke, but it's important to differentiate. And one of the differentiating factors is if you look at the big cloud, so Google, Microsoft, Amazon, these are companies that are sitting on tens of billions of dollars and are growing 30% year over year. So incredible growth in the big cloud. And I think that those companies that are serving integrations and optimizations and managing that infrastructure in that big cloud are going to be absolutely essential across the enterprise. And it's going to be very, very hard to pull those out. And I think there's this idea of an enterprise network effect where once you're in that system, you're in that multi-cloud world, you're really stuck in there. And then the second type of company that I think is also going to be an interesting one is one that has what PagerDuty describes as well, which is a land and expand. And so you start serving just maybe the developer, and then you serve the developer and the business intelligence person, and the salesperson, and the marketing person. And once you become more Flywheel. deeply embedded in an org, exactly, then it becomes extremely hard to rip you out. And so I think that you're seeing that type of effect with a company like PagerDuty as well. And we've certainly seen with companies like PagerDuty grow their revenue from each of their customers in addition to adding those new customers. So now that we've heard from the CEOs, how should you play these mixed results? Our next guest sees more trouble ahead over the next two quarters, projecting earnings expectations will keep falling as consumers and companies pull back spending. Joining us now is BMO Wealth Management Chief Investment Strategist, Young Yu Ma. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, I'm curious for your big picture perspective, which are the companies and, and the sectors within tech that you think are best equipped um, to manage this downturn you expect? Thank you, and thanks for having me. We do think that growth is going to slow, and we do think that there are going to be a lot of headwinds. So it's really important to think about which companies can both defend profit margins and where those dollars will be spent. Uh, we do think, as you mentioned previously, enterprise software is a big area uh, that's going to have a, a focus for companies because a lot of companies are going to be looking to enhance productivity. That's going to be the name of the game, and that's going to be when budgets get tight, where the money keeps flowing. So we think that's an area uh, of focus. And one of the probably the two areas that we focus on in sort of a barbell approach, one being that growth aspect in enterprise software, but then also in technology, more of a stable part of technology where you see a strong ecosystem and where you see recurring revenues, a very stable part. So we think a barbell approach makes sense uh, in terms of approaching the current environment. And we do think growth is going to slow and estimates are going to come down. You know, we start off the show talking about the comments from President Biden about trying to keep inflation in check. Of course, that raises questions about what kind of action we're going to see from the Fed. And then, of course, we talked about Elon Musk cutting jobs. Um, looking at that macro environment here, are there any names you would pull out as ones that are particularly well positioned right now, especially in this sort of mixed warnings we've gotten from some of the larger companies? Well, really, you want to focus on the big uh, the, in that barbell approach, you'd want to focus on the big uh, mega cap 
stable, strong ecosystems for one area, which I think those names are very well known. Uh, the other space being the growth areas where you can get that productivity enhancements because that's what companies are going to be looking for right now. So some of the some of the areas where you can see those uh, customer service uh, um, management uh, CRM software looks very strong right now. Probably is where continued spending is going to be. So I think the names that have done well are going to continue to do well, and the names that have struggled because of either low profitability, uh, inability to expand uh, cash flows. Those are probably going to continue to struggle as well. Even the companies that showed some good results last night, though, they're not doing well in today's market with the Nasdaq down nearly 3% right now. PagerDuty was higher on their results, but they've lost all of those gains. Okta is interesting. It is holding up. I think last we showed it was up about 7%. And what's so interesting about this company is I wonder if you think that this is maybe a narrative violation. We've talked so much about how investors want to see profitability. This is a company that's still losing money. In fact, net loss more than doubled year over year, but it has positive free cash flow. What do you make of that? Well, absolutely. Profitability is going to be a big focus here. So that's part of that barbell approach. Uh, in the current environment, profitability is going to be very important. So uh, we think you really want to focus on companies where you're having growth at a reasonable price. And that emphasis on profitability when liquidity is tightening is, is really going to be primary important. So companies that are just growing revenues, um, yes, free cash flow is important, but you really want to see bottom line profitability at this point. And the market's going to have a heightened focus on that. So we think big is better than small. Uh, enterprise is better. Uh, enterprise is better than consumer. And and you really want to focus on software over hardware as well. So there are a few themes you can focus on, but profitability is certainly a theme that permeates all of those. That's going to be a major focus as earnings get cut, which companies are able to maintain profitability and even grow profits, um, not just revenues. Yeah, certainly profitability front and center. Young you, thank you so much for talking to us today. And a new story out for the Wall Street Journal headlined, Why Sheryl Sandberg Quit Facebook's Meta. The lengthy article cites people close to Sandberg saying she's gotten, quote, burnt out from her time at the company and that she feels she has become a punching bag for Meta's issues. The journal also reporting that Sandberg has not been closely involved with Zuckerberg's shift to the metaverse, a business which is not as closely aligned with her main focus on ad sales. Now, she reportedly did not attend many of the meetings related to the pivot. The story also notes that Meta started a company investigation into her after she allegedly pressured a UK tabloid to drop a story about her former boyfriend, Activision CEO Bobby Kotick. The journal reports that this dovetailed into an investigation into whether she used company resources to help plan her upcoming wedding. A Meta spokeswoman told the journal, quote, none of this has anything to do with her personal decision to leave. We have reached out to Meta for comment, but we have not gotten any response back yet. Kanye, I'm curious, you know, as more trickles out about Sheryl Sandberg's departure, if you have a sense of whether this is really about the transformation of the company to focus on the metaverse and this 10-year plan that Mark Zuckerberg is focusing on. I actually happen to believe it is. And I do, as a side note, think that this notion of burnout and also this issue around the investigations is both overblown and unfair. I mean, if I had gone from zero in revenue to 118 billion in revenue, of which I drove 98%, uh, I'd probably be tired too. And so I think we ought to give her some grace on that basis at the minimum. But maybe more importantly, I think we're at an inflection point for Facebook, which is as big as the transition from a web app to a mobile app, which happened at this point 15 years ago. And it's maybe even bigger as a matter of existential risk for the company because they have to figure out how to do it in a substantively more competitive environment with TikTok, with Apple's privacy changes impacting how they're going to be able to continue their advertising revenue on mobile. And so they really have to make a big transition there, Deidre. Yeah, and that's a good point because uh, given up all of its gains so far this week, Facebook is down about 4%. Apple is trading down as well this morning, four and a quarter of a percent um, as weakened app store growth scares off investors ahead of the company's biggest event of the year. The Worldwide Developers Conference kicks off, that's Monday, and rumors from new software to advertising changes to ditching the lightning cable, those are all swirling. Our Steve Kovac has the latest. Steve. 
Yeah, hey there, Dee. This is going to actually be Apple's first in-person event since the pandemic began, but limited to a smaller group of developers, not those thousands that usually show up. And as always, WWDC is about updates to software for all the major platforms. That's iPhone, iPad, Mac, TV, watch. But what you really need to pay attention to is augmented reality. We're getting all these hints. The Apple headset we keep hearing about is on the cusp of a launch, including a recent trademark filing by Apple. It'd be Apple's first major product in over seven years and kick off a new platform war with rivals like Meta and Google. Apple has had AR on the iPhone for years and will want to see how they're building on that foundation for this new hardware. But expectations are all over the map if we'll actually see the headset on Monday, though. This is the audience for it. Developers are the ones who are going to need to make those apps that you're going to use on this headset. But most predict Apple will hold off until the fall for the big reveal and start sales early next year. Still, we might see some hardware like a new Mac Pro. Apple already teased that's coming. And it would be the final Mac to ditch Intel for Apple's own chips. Also, there are some reports of a redesigned MacBook Air laptop with uh, new and faster versions of Apple's chip. And finally, privacy. This is what the folks at Meta, Snap, Twitter, and all those social media companies are going to be watching because any more privacy features on the iPhone that limit ability to target ads are going to be bad news. We've already seen the impact on those privacy features have had on Meta's business. And I know, Julia, you're going to be watching that one. Guys, back to you. Go ahead, Julia. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. We are watching to see whether Apple's going to just throw another dart and really challenge the way the ad platforms work. I mean, the thing I'm so curious about is this issue of fingerprinting. I mean, if you look at the issue that has defined um, the revenue slowdown for the tech giants in the social space over the past several quarters, it's really been about navigating Apple's operating system changes when it comes to targeting ads. And now the question is whether they'll throw a new wrench into things with um, a crackdown on fingerprinting, which is a another tool used to target ads. And so, Connie, I'm wondering, if, as you look at this and the fact that they also, um, Apple's increasingly going to be going head-to-head -head with Meta in the VR, AR space, do you think that we might hear some, some more notes about how they're trying to really differentiate what they're doing? I mean, I don't know how much we're going to get from this headset, but, you know, this is a, increasingly a fascinating rivalry to watch. It is. And I see Apple at this point having two fronts that it seems like they're trying to make some expansions on, one of which is diversifying their services lane out of the app store only. And so I think that's really interesting what they're doing in media. And I think that their ability to actually push streaming to the fore and create a real streaming lane is going to allow for some of their services and software revenue to increase. On this interface question, though, uh, I feel a little bit like where we are today with respect to VR and AR feels a little bit like maybe 2003. And so we're in this place where there's some enterprise adoption, there's some developer adoption, there's belief that there's, you know, with the smartphone that is, there's belief that there's a new interface coming, but there hasn't quite been a breakthrough moment. And so Apple is hoping they're going to be that product. I happen to believe that there are other companies that are working on better products, but there's really a need for a new interface that breaks us out of the paradigm of pictures under glass. And all these companies are trying to figure out who's going to get to it first. Dee. Yeah, so Kanye, we're sitting in San Francisco. Julia's in LA. We are focused and interested in the new innovations that are going to roll out. But at the same time, Apple shares are down four and a quarter of a percent right now. They are underperforming the broader markets. Investors care more about these near-term issues like supply chain, logistics, the economic slowdown. Um, do you think that Tim Cook and the team are going to be able to maybe provide some optimism next week at a time when we hear from Jamie Dimon and Elon Musk saying that they're worried about the economy? Well, similarly to Microsoft when they were talking about their Forex issues, when you're a company of that scale, to some extent, you're kind of indexing global consumer interest. And in the case of Microsoft, it's at the enterprise level. In the case of Apple, it's probably more consumer demand because it's a matter of selling devices and selling on the App Store. And so I do think that it's going to be an important bellwether for what's happening with respect to consumer demand. And I'm not that optimistic in the short term. Uh, further to that, even though it's a passing comment that was made, I think it's a critical one, which is that this product that's coming out next year is going to be their first new major innovation in seven years, which speaks to the fact that right now what it seems like they've been doing is harvesting gains right. from their phone and their accessories products, but they need to figure out a way to build into And coming at a time when they're having supply chain issues for their current suite of products, right? So that'll be interesting. Precisely. Julia. 
Yeah, I, I mean, if you look at it, you know, the watch was a was a new growth driver. There's this question of whether they're going to be rejiggering the way the uh, iPad works to make it more of a of a competitor or an alternative to something like a laptop. And so there are these questions about when it comes to hardware, what's really going to be the next growth driver? But I have to go back to the fact that the stock is down over four percent, and Morgan Stanley's Katie Huberty and the red flag she's raising about a slowdown in App Store growth. I mean, the slowdown she points out is. Pretty Pretty dramatic, and you have to wonder: Is that about consumer confidence? Is that about consumer strength, or is it just more um, of a of a little bit of a fatigue with what's going on right now in the app store? So, really notable to point to Morgan Stanley's note, um, you know, talking about a near-term deceleration that could be really challenging. D. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the markets continue to move lower as we talk, guys. The Dow is down nearly 400 points. NASDAQ is down nearly 3%. Uh, Kanye, what do you think is going on today? I mean, at first, the, it was supposed to be a Goldilocks number. The jobs report was a little better than expected, not too good. But now we're seeing this massive sell-off in tech take place once again, even though May was a little better. Honestly, the truth of the matter is, and, and Joe Biden actually made reference to this, they're trying to thread an incredibly tight needle with this jobs issue. And so we heard from Vice Chair Brainerd yesterday talking about how this jobs market is too tight. And if it's too tight, they need to figure out a way to cool it so as to try and bring wages down and try and control inflation. But if it's too tight, how do you cool it without actually driving us into a recession? And a lot of investors are rightfully really concerned about the way to thread that needle. So I think we're actually dealing with a lot of uncertainty with that. The beginning of this quantitative tightening is going to create this really uncertain picture in terms of how to make sure we don't enter a stagflationary environment, which it looks like is going to be a really hard thing for us to avoid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we talked enterprise software. I want to talk a little bit about fintech as we have you as well. Um, these names have just been killed this year. And, you know, some are wondering, are there too many cooks in the kitchen? We talked about this uh, with Kate Rooney earlier this week. Competition is heating up. There's also a CNBC piece, uh, .com piece that explores whether the space is reaching max capacity. Investors are starting to think um, that they're seeing repetition in offerings and business models. And then there's the valuation carnage. Uh, names like Affirm and Coinbase, they're all plunging more than 70% on the year. Um, there have been this proliferation of public companies, Kanye and Julia, um, and there's even more in the public space. What do you think, Kanye? Should we have seen more consolidation at this point? Absolutely not. Uh, I happen to think that what's happening in fintech right now is currently still misunderstood by most of the investors, which is that they think of fintech as we're just competing with banks. But what I actually think of fintech as is we're adding a financialization layer to all of software. And if you're adding a financialization layer to all of software, that's actually a very different model. Please. But they all want to be the one-stop shop, right? That's what you hear. They want to do everything. They want to expand into different financial services. Can they all do that? It's in the same way that enterprise cloud is actually kind of all barreling to all becoming one-top stops, all becoming integration centers, all becoming places where you land and expand. I think the same is going to happen for fintech, but it's going to be a story that has to play out over 15 years, and it's going to happen within each one of these sectors. And so that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say is in the private markets, what we did see admittedly over the course of the last 18 months was prices and valuations just getting way, way out ahead of fundamentals. And there was so much enthusiasm about breaking away from the big four banks and consumers driving to a totally new paradigm. And I think that was actually happening at a faster rate from investor expectation than was happening in reality. So we're still seeing that reset, but I'm still long-term bullish that we're going to have a financialization of software that's going to happen in every sector. And that's what I'm sort of thinking of as the macro. But, Kanye, aren't we seeing a sort of traditional disruption cycle here where you have all of these fintech disruptors, new ways of doing things, um, new ways of getting consumers to interact, whether it's a, a betterment um, or a Robinhood, this idea of digitizing that financial experience. And then you have the incumbents react to the disruptors by launching these services themselves. And we've heard you know, from different companies about how successful it's been to have their own digital platforms and digital options among the incumbents. So then the question is, can the disruptors either keep innovating and keep differentiating what they're doing, or do they then have to sell or get absorbed into the giants because those deep-pocketed you know, financial services companies have just so many resources in those pre-existing relationships with consumer consumers? I mean, how inevitable is it that the incumbents um, are better positioned to compete once they you know, can take ideas from the disruptors? Within the sector, it comes down to user experience and it comes down to stickiness and to distribution. Uh, when you look at consumer banking, the net promoter score among the big four is extremely low. 
uh, and you look at the rise of the neobanks, there's an incredible appetite among consumers to have a better banking user experience. And thus far, we've had 10 years among the incumbents to prove an ability to do it, and they haven't. Now, that's different in a sector like something like lending, for example, and, and programmatic and algorithmic lending, where that one comes more to can you figure out ways to get distribution? And can you figure out ways to get distribution that keeps your CAC low enough that your margin on the lending actually makes sense? And I think that the bigger banks do have an advantage there because they have fundamental distribution. That said, uh, the technology that a company like a firm brings to bear is really something that they're investing in for the very, very long term. And so you have to believe that they think that their underwriting capacity is going to be better, ultimately. Uh, that still remains to be seen, to be qu quite honest with you. But I think that's the bet. And then finally, as it relates purely to as you think about software and distribution, for some of the pure enterprise names in fintech, uh, I personally believe that it looks very much like enterprise cloud, uh, where you have to think about how essential a service is to the profit margins of the, ultimate, of the ultimate customer, how essential a service is to the stickiness of an ultimate customer. And you're seeing amazing, amazing, amazing success there in some of these fintech names that are serving the enterprise customer. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I go back to a quote from J.P. Morgan's uh, Jamie Dimon earlier this year. He said that their UVEST platform had reached $55 billion in assets, and he said that was without us doing virtually anything, uh, which I think is fascinating. Deirdre, just looking at that advantage there, but, and also looking at the decline of these stocks, not only over the past 12 months, but a lot of them are down today as well. Well, that's my question to Kanye. If you think that they're all, or not all of them, but there's enough space for many different fintech companies, is there an opportunity here? I mean, they have been so beaten down in the current markets, and it feels like investors are still a little scared to nibble at them, but you're kind of saying the opposite, right? Yeah. I mean, I, again, it's a long-term play, and so as you think about the short and medium term, a lot of these companies were were totally, totally, totally priced out ahead of their fundamentals, right. and so they're playing catch-up. That said, some of the infrastructure and some of the user experience that these companies have developed is just a cut above the incumbents. But how do you figure out what's a fair valuation? Obviously, they ran up so much during the pandemic. So where does that shake out? Uh, I think that reset is going to have to look to pre-COVID comps. Mm. And so when you look to pre-COVID comps, uh, you are typically seeing something in the range of 8 to 15 times uh, sales. And 8 to 15 times is you know, something much more substantive than 20 to 30, right. which is what you've seen in the last couple of months. So that reset is actually totally healthy. And I don't think we should be sort of overlooking uh, the fact that these guys are building fundamental infrastructure that's going to yeah. be more investable in the long term. I love how you give us numbers, uh, that range to look for. We like having you here, Kanye. Uh, coming up on the show, still a downgrade of one high-profile semiconductor stock. We'll discuss how to play the name on the other side of the break. Stay with us. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Give it to you. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Exco, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Time now for a gut check on Micron. That stock down nearly 7%. Piper Sandler downgrading the stock to underweight from neutral this morning. They say oversized exposure to mobile, PC, and other consumer end markets puts the company at risk to trends in the macro economy. Earlier this week, we heard from HP, which said while commercial PC revenue increased 18%, consumer revenue was down 6%. It's a trend we'll continue to keep an eye on as both consumers and investors weigh the chance of recession. Tech Tech will be right back. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Exco, give it to you. How about that? 
That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. As we were talking about Tesla making headlines this morning after Musk said the company would look to reduce headcount by around 10 percent. But that trend extends throughout almost all of tech. Coinbase said that it's even planning to rescind some offer letters as growth companies look to save cash. Kate Rooney has more on what's becoming a pretty significant hiring freeze, especially with companies adjacent or dependent on crypto. Yeah, that's right. We are starting to see some of the cracks in crypto. Coinbase extending a hiring freeze and rescinding some job offers already made to applicants. It comes two weeks after announcing a hiring pause. In a memo this week, executives say it's become more evident we need to take more stringent measures to slow some of that headcount growth. They talk about market conditions. It comes as Bitcoin is still down more than 50% from that all-time high. This week, we also had Gemini, the exchange founded by the Winklevoss twins, cutting 10% of its workforce, also pointing to those crypto market conditions. In a memo, they call this a crypto winter and say, we are not alone, suggesting we may see more of some of those layoffs. And across tech, the layoffs really continued this week, according to one open source tracker called layoffs.fyi. Another 21 companies cut jobs this week. Last month, startups saw the highest number of layoffs since 2020. That was, of course, the depths of the pandemic. It was about 17,000 for the month of May and 21,000 for the second quarter of this year. That total is more than all of last year combined. And to be clear, guys, this uh, doesn't account for hiring during that time. But it does come as we got that strong jobs report this morning. I talked to our Steve Leesman about it. He says we saw telecom hiring down. That was after a big jump in April. Information services was up, but we're really not seeing notable weakness in tech showing up in those labor markets. So this could be contained to just startups at the moment or really a period of normalization after some of that hyper growth in tech. Either way, startups certainly looking to preserve cash as some of those valuations get hit. And it's been harder to raise venture capital money. We heard warnings from Sequoia and other investors. We also had Robinhood, Netflix this morning. You mentioned Tesla cutting about 10% of its workforce. Recent months, we've seen Netflix, Klarna, a handful of other tech companies scaling back. Deirdre, back to you. Kate Rooney, thank you for that roundup. Kanye, we spoke earlier, actually enterprise software is an area that has had up. The three CEOs I spoke to this morning, they are keeping their hiring plans. They are adding this year. But crypto is so interesting um, because it shouldn't be all that surprising that we're seeing hiring suspended or even slashed or layoffs. Um, but I guess the next question is, where do they go? Are they going to other crypto Web3 companies? And what happens to the developers? Do you think this will be a shakeout of the whole space? And you're at the earlier stage, venture capital part of this, so you would be in a good position to see. Well, we are clearly entering, if not already, in the middle of crypto winter. And uh, this isn't the first crypto winter. This is the third, maybe the fourth, depending on who's counting. And uh, a couple of things happening during crypto winter, one of which is the tourists leave. And tourists leaving, uh, you know, has uh, an impact on liquidity. It has an impact on the general enthusiasm in the market. And that can be costly from an investment standpoint. But it's also a healthy thing because it means that the people who stay are there for the right reason. With respect to who's hiring, uh, a lot of the bigger companies are thinking about cost cutting and are thinking about preserving liquidity and preserving cash. But the startups are certainly hiring. And so we've seen in our, in our community that this is actually a better environment to be a startup where you're trying to figure out how to hire because you're competing less with aggressive incumbents and you're competing with incumbents that are pulling back. And that's actually something that's going to play well for the private markets and the early stage companies. And so I actually think that there's a positive trend there. The last point I'll make quickly on crypto winter, though, is crypto winter is actually where so often 
many of the most interesting companies get built. To this point about tourists leaving, to this point about a return to fundamentals and a belief in pure software. Our investment in DYDX, which my partner made a number of years ago during crypto winter, was actually one of the most important investments in our portfolio. We have an investment in a company called Goldfinch, similarly, which are created during these downturns because the startups can hire, because the startups can compete, because the startups are optimistic while everybody else is less so. Kanye, I think it's so interesting to look at the list of companies that you've invested in in the crypto space. I mean, it is a long list, including uh, Coinbase, Cointracker, Braintrust, Bitsky. I mean, such a, an assortment here. And I have to wonder, though, as you look at some of the companies you've invested in, like Coinbase and this next generation, how much the fact that tourists have left and that maybe there were more people who got involved that these companies thought we're going to stick around for the long haul, maybe more tourists than, say, Coinbase expected, is going to really decimate some of these players, especially the bigger ones. Uh, it's a good point, Julie. And what I'll say is um, those who decimate because of the tourists leaving maybe don't have the great fundamentals in the first place, maybe aren't offering something that the market really needs. And so it's one of these things where I actually think it's somewhat healthy to shake out those companies who have customers that are coming for genuine reason, whether it's at the consumer level or at the enterprise. And so what we have certainly seen is a pullback of liquidity on all of these markets. But those people who stay are staying because they really want to contribute to these networks. They're staying because they really want to participate in some of these decentralized uh, uh, communities. And I think that's actually going to be really healthy for setting a better trajectory for this next phase of crypto growth, which I think will come. I got to say, I was a little surprised to hear you say that the startups are still hiring at the same pace. Do you think that, you know, the need for profitability in Web3 crypto is less um, less important at that stage? Investors are willing to wait a little bit, a little bit longer? So startups, uh, especially the earlier stage you go, um, are building for a market that's going to appear five years from now. Right. Uh, and so they're hiring because they're trying to figure out how to make something work. They're hiring because they're trying to get their market. And they probably market. don't have another choice, right? They need they the developers, no they need the engineers. Absolutely. Yeah. They're trying to get to a point which uh, David Sachs calls default investable. Okay. Right? And part of being default investable is you often need to invest in that. And so startups actually have to invest. And I think it's healthy for them to do so, so long as they're doing it with a clear understanding of what the capital markets right. look like. Right. Interesting. Uh, still to come, self-driving taxis. They are finally here. What it means for investors of companies like Uber and Lyft. That's next. Stay with us. Walmart's first ever Walmart Plus weekend kicking off yesterday, a sales event intended to rival Amazon's Prime Day. It's one of the many ways the commerce giant is trying to catch up in the e-commerce race. CNBC's Katie Shulove, Melissa Repko, and Aaron Black went to Walmart headquarters in Bentonville, Arkansas, for the first ever public interview with Walmart's new head of e-commerce, Tom Ward, to discuss his plans to further infiltrate the e-commerce market. Take a listen. The boxes flying down the line at this 2.3 million square foot distribution center are sorted, scanned and labeled, then loaded into trucks destined for the shelves of the country's biggest retailer. We have 4,700 locations across the US. And if the store acts like a fulfillment center, we can send those items the shortest distance in the fastest time. Over the past few years, Walmart's built more than 30 warehouses like this, some with robots and people, entirely dedicated to fulfilling online orders. Workers at stores are also picking and packing online orders as Walmart turns dozens of stores into micro-fulfillment centers. It's added membership program Walmart Plus to compete with Prime, invested heavily in local delivery programs in homes and with drones, and started packing and shipping orders for third-party sellers as it works to entice them to walmart.com. To learn more about the company's plans to take on Amazon and to watch that whole interview with Tom Ward, head over to CNBC.com for that full 17-minute package. Tech Check is back after one more break. Last night, autonomous vehicle company Cruise gaining approval to offer robo-taxi service to paying riders in San Francisco. Phil Bowe has more on what this means for autonomous ride sharing. Phil? 
what it means is that we're going to start to see more of these vehicles out on the road. Now, initially, it's just going to be one part of San Francisco. Crews getting the authorization from the final regulatory agency in California saying, yes, you can offer paid rides to the public in vehicles that do not have drivers. So that means it'll start in northwest San Francisco, then gradually expand, offering rides between 10 at night and 6 in the morning when there's less traffic on the road. The price of each ride that remains to be seen, but the COO of Cruz says they will be competitive with Uber and Lyft and may ultimately have a cost advantage. We think there'll be a substantial cost advantage um, as we progress, in particular enabled by our purpose-built vehicle, the Origin. That vehicle, the Origin, is being built by General Motors. They showed it to us last year. Uh, it basically is a, a multi-person vehicle. It does not have a steering wheel. So you will be able to have three, four, five people sitting inside of this vehicle as it uh, takes you around San Francisco. And the idea is to commercialize rides in this vehicle starting next year. If you take a look at shares of General Motors, this is a major feather in the cap for GM because CEO Mary Barra said long ago they see immense potential for crews to not just be the beginning of developing autonomous vehicle rides, Deirdre, but to be a profit driver in the future, especially when you bring the cost advantage into play when you strip out the driver. So we'll see what happens and what the acceptance is from the public when these paid rides start to be offered within the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and key here, Phil, no safety driver. You see a lot of these autonomous vehicles around the city, um, but always with a driver in case anything goes wrong. So th this will be Correct. interesting. Uh, Kanye, we already have a lot of vehicles around the city. Um, how much, and I know that you have a lot of investments in this space as well. How much weight do you put on the fact that they're going to be the first to do this? It's going to be next year that they've beat out some of the players like Waymo. And remember when Uber wanted to get into autonomous driving, kind of abandoned those plans. It's very important for them that they can be first because it'll allow them to use that as a banner that they can hold up. Uh, but what I think is actually maybe more important is they've finally proven to the whole market that it's possible. And I think this is one of those things where you have to have a breakthrough and possibility first. Uh, and that's at the regulator level, that's at the consumer level, just to get comfortable with the idea. And then you can start to optimize beyond that. And I think the optimization curve for something which is software, again, is going to look substantively, substantively more optimistic than even the most optimistic projections can imagine. Yeah, Connie, I can't imagine these driverless cars stuck in traffic here in Los Angeles. I'm curious what you think this means for Uber, which you did invest in, and also whether Apple could really become a player in this space. I think it means an enormous amount for anybody who's thinking about mobility. And uh, Apple obviously has that in their, in their plans. Who knows where they get to it? And the reason why I think it's so interesting for mobility is mobility has a fundamental cost structure that up until maybe last night, in some sense, um, was reasonably fixed, which is that the labor uh, can't be adjusted. And if you can fundamentally change that cost structure, then the upside can suddenly become unlimited. Now, how that rolls out is going to have to be progressive over time. It's going to have to be in grids, as Deidre and I were talking about. It's going to have to be in more protected areas. It's going to have to be in traditional routes, like to airports and that type of thing. But that's actually going to significantly increase the ability to deliver services at better right. margins. We have this really geeky chat you're referring to during the break when we talked about the benefits of LiDAR technology, which Cruise is going to be using versus the Tesla system of cameras um, and how that opportunity is a little bit different, right? We're not yet at L5 autonomy, which is the full autonomous vehicle, uh, but we're getting reasonably close. Some people think it's five years, some people think it's 10 years, but we don't have to be at that to have a true robo-driving future. We don't have to be at that to have an autonomous future. It can be that there are parts of a city or parts of a community where there's true autonomous, and I think that's possible here and really exciting. And you called it a $1 trillion versus $100 trillion opportunity. Is that right? Did I get those numbers? Uh, not One, quite, but something in something that Something like that. Okay. Um, Kanye, it was so great to have you today. Uh, we hope you'll join us again. That'll do it for us on Tech Check. The markets are weaker. They're down, down, about, down about 350 points. Let's get to the judge and the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. 
ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com.